coming up in this episode. For more than two years, the Islamic State group, under the orders of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, has battered religious and ethnic minorities in Iraq, Syria, and Libya. And many have asked the question, why is the world just standing by? Having known vividly from the history of my own people, um, and watching the world, seeing what happens when good people remain silent in the face of those who would use their religious beliefs or their ideal political ideological beliefs uh, to believe that they can destroy freedom and they can destroy other people who differ with them. Uh, this is a quintessential uh, example of that challenge to the world. But U.S., along with its coalition of 60-plus countries, has hammered ISIL since December 2014. But still... The brutal terror group has managed to hang on. So what is it the world is going to do to help those ethnic and religious minorities that have been on the front lines of ISIL's depravity? David Saperstein, the U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom, joins us on this program to talk about what's being done. Target USA is brought to you by TrueCar. There's something about TrueCar that a lot of people don't know. Using TrueCar can also help you buy a used car. In fact, there are over 500,000 pre-owned vehicles available from TrueCar certified dealers nationwide. Whether you are looking to buy new or used, you can get upfront pricing information that empowers discounts off the list price for used cars and a better buying experience through the certified TrueCar dealer network. Using the True Car pricing curve, you can even see what other people paid for the car you want, so you can know what a fair price is and feel confident. True Car users save an average of $3,279 off MSRP. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing, so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. And using the True Car website or the True Car app, you can easily find the new or used car you want. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit TrueCar.com or download the TrueCar app to enjoy a better car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Whether it's anarchist, cyber criminals, nation states, or terrorist, America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. August 3rd, 2014, Sinjar, Iraq. ISIS had captured tanks, Humvees, very sophisticated weaponry, from the Iraqi army when it captured Mosul. And it was using those weapons against the people of Sinjar and against the Peshmerga who were very lightly armed. Unfortunately, the Peshmerga withdrew in complete disarray. On August 2nd, 2016, Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman, the representative of the Kurdistan regional government to the US, sat down for an emotional interview reflecting on the events of August 3rd, 2014, the Sinjar Massacre. ISIS then began a campaign of genocide. The village of Kojo, one of the villages in Sinjar district, um, 
is really the scene of the biggest massacre and genocide. Uh, thousands of women were taken, children were taken, men were killed, buried, and uh, we know that there are mass graves there. There are satellite images as well of many mass graves around Sinjar. ISIS also kidnapped or took captive over 5,000 women and children and some men too, but the majority were women and children. And they took them as slaves. And we know that they used the women as sexual slaves. They have been tortured, raped, gang raped. They have been sold in markets. And the children have also been sexually abused. Some of the children are being trained to be the next generation of ISIS terrorist, terrorists or suicide bombers. And several, well, let me correct that, over 2,000 of the women and children have been rescued. Uh, a lot of that with the help of uh, the Prime Minister's office, the uh, Prime Minister of the Kurdistan region. Um, many other organizations have also helped to rescue some of the Yazidi women and children. But even today, two years later, 3,200 women and children are still held captive. Some we know are still in Mosul. Some have been taken to Raqqa. Others have been taken much further afield, and it's much harder to track them down, harder to find them. It was much easier at the beginning, and that's why so many were rescued at the beginning. Now it's much more complicated. More than 3,200 women and children are still missing. And it's not clear, as Rahman said, where they are. During the genocide, thousands of people were forced into the Sinjar Mountains and killed or left there to die. So ISIL could further its objective of exterminating the Yazidi people and replacing them in the Sinjar region with its own preferred race of people. Genocide. And Sinjar is just one of the places where the Islamic State group has sought to do this. Since the gut-wrenching accounts of what happened in Sinjar emerged, the world is mobilized to try to stop ISIL on a number of fronts. There's the military effort, 67 countries involved. The U.S.-led coalition has flown more than 90,000 sorties, conducting 14,000 coalition airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. 30,000 Iraqi security personnel have also been trained. There have been efforts to provide food and resources to people on the ground, suffering under the reign of the Islamic State group. But there's also been another effort. David Saperstein, the U.S. State Department Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom, sat down to talk with us about what's going on. In the past year, there has been a series of international conferences originally um, uh, launched by uh, former Foreign Minister of France, uh, Laurent Fabius, and there was a meeting at the secu on, on religious minorities in uh, the Near East, but particularly in Iraq. And the original conference was held a year and a few months ago at the Security Council. And then Paris hosted a conference uh, in uh, last August to try and derive an action plan, a consensus action plan, what we can do to help religious and ethnic minorities um, in the Near East. 
and what kind of commitments uh, countries would uh, make to help implement that plan. They agreed on an action plan, but now we've been pushing towards commitments. And when there was a delay in the follow-up country in a meeting in Spain, we stepped in with the support of France, Jordan, and Spain, the three uh, endorsers of these conferences, um, to convene a conference here this summer to help move the process of commitments to help conditions to allow the restoration of religious minorities who have fled their home communities to be able to return. Explain to us how we got to this point. When ISIL came in over the past two years, um, it displaced a million people internally in Iraq from these historic communities where some of these minority groups had been living for 2,000 years. Um, and it uh, imposed its rule uh, with its extremist interpretation of Islam on these uh, populations in, and engaged in actions on behalf of its vision that the Secretary of State declared to be genocide against Christians, Yazidis, and Shia Muslims, um, and crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing against a range of the other uh, smaller groups. So they, those groups have dev devastated. Uh, their women have been taken as sex slaves or forced marriages. People have been forced to convert. Children have been brutalized into being uh, children soldiers uh, for, um, uh, for ISIL. Um, many, as I said, a million people had to flee their uh, communities. And we're engaged in a process to help protect those minorities while they're displaced and to create conditions to allow them to return to their homes as ISIL is being pushed out. A lot of anger has been expressed at the West and the U.S. as well for allowing, in their opinions, the people who are angry, the situation to get to that point. And this is not necessarily in your backyard, but again, this is all one, one team, one fight, you guys, the, the U.S. government. Um, do you, what do you hear in terms of that? As you look across the globe and you see Boko Haram in Nigeria and Cameroon and Chad and a number of the other uh, countries in Africa, and you see Al-Shabaab in Somalia and Kenya, and you see Al-Qaeda in, in, in Asia and Central Asia, um, uh, there, are, there are a number of these groups. The notion that in some way American policy was, was a defining uh, piece of the explanation for this really doesn't bear sense when you look at the global uh, at the global scene um, but we have responsibilities in this region having removed a horrific dictator um, we've always acknowledged our responsibilities to try and stabilize these areas and when this new threat uh, began and the president realized the enormous uh, distinctive uh, dangers that it posed he intervened to save the Yazidi people who were explicitly targeted for genocide um, by ISIL and to put together the coalition to address militarily um, uh, ISIL's uh, threats and expansion, reverse it, and drive them out of the areas that they have taken. We're now concerned about all the other pieces um, that as ISIL is driven out, the difficult task of rebuilding and reconciling people with pain and differences as a result of ISIL's uh, uh, presence that need to be addressed. Has it been expressed to the group that, yes, the world was slow to act on this, or is that something you're not touching at this point? 
every group that's been victimized by ethnic cleansing or crimes against humanity or um, genocidal activity always believes that the world acted too slow. It's all the times when actually we act in a very effective way to stop these situations that nobody thinks about it and uh, people kind of shrug and accept it as a matter of course. Um, but there are times where things happen so fast Think of Rwanda, think of uh, 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 you know, ISIL as it's swept across uh, these areas. That understanding the enormity of what's going on and responding effectively can often be a, uh, a challenge. So, you know, we, we're, uh, we're moving as effectively as you could when the dimensions of ISIL's evil was clear to the president. He acted about as forcefully as anyone could act. We acted even before we declared genocide as though this were genocide and we had responsibilities to stop it. And uh, it's one of the things I think Americans should be extraordinarily proud of. And I know most of uh, the people we deal with from all the different groups um, are deeply appreciative of. You're exactly right about that. Yuval Steinitz, one of the top ministers from Israel, I spoke with him about this very thing a couple of years ago. And he said to me, yeah, no, all of us were caught off guard. The whole world was caught off guard by this situation, but it's up to us to now take the steps that are necessary to deal with it, and I, I believe that's what is happening. And I think that's exactly what President Obama um, uh, has been living by. As soon as the enormity was recognized, we moved forcefully um, to mobilize the international community to stop the genocide and to eliminate the, uh, the forces that um, had perpetrated it and make it possible for people to return to normal. What is the measure of success of this gathering? I think the unified view of everyone gathered here is the real test is will conditions change to allow people safely and with a sense of hope to, restur to return to these great historic communities and to rejuvenate a pluralistic tapestry of religious and ethnic life in Iraq. That's the goal we all have and much of our attention will be on how do we make that possible and how can this panoply of uh, international nations from every area of the world um, work together to actually realize that hope. You're looking at Iraq, but there are other countries that are involved in this. There are, there are other countries that are uh, facing the same situation. Is this a blueprint for the future, what, what you're working on now? You know, every time something like this happens, we try to learn lessons from it in, in order to avoid it in the future and respond more, um, uh, more effectively. So we created the Atrocities Prevention Board um, uh, here, and that meets regularly at the White House to try and learn lessons from the past, both the successes and failures of uh, the international community uh, in past atrocities and genocidal activities and crimes against humanity. Um, and we apply those to ongoing situations. So we can, we can only do the best that is possible to do. And as you said, in fast-moving situations, very quick to destroy things, mm -hmm. very hard and time-consuming to rebuild them. And we have to work on both fronts, prevent the destruction where new groups arise before it reaches these levels and be more effective in mobilizing the international community for the rebuilding and the change of, of, uh, of international structures to be more effective on both sides of that equation. You, I noticed, are a rabbi and a lawyer. 
Um, can you explain how? How how are those skills helping you get your job done? JJ, it's a really it's a fascinating uh, question. It's a long question. It's a, it, it, it's a I, I appreciate it. So let me let me take a crack at it. Um, my um, my academic background is a rabbi and an attorney teaching at Georgetown University Law School, where I teach both religious law, comparative Jewish and American law, and I teach church state law and the relationship of religious groups with the state has actually been of great interest to the people that I am meeting across the globe. When I meet with key religious leaders struggling with some of the same issues and the authorities of the committees on religious affairs who have to deal with the relationship of church and state, my writings and the academic background I, I engages us in fascinating conversations comparing the religious law, it might be Buddhist or Muslim or Christian th religious thinking um, uh, in, in comparison with Jewish religious thinking and the models within their country of the relationship of church and state, that is religion and state, with the models from our own country. Uh, after all, we're the most religiously diverse country in the history of the world. 2,000 sociologists tell us, 2,000 religions, denominations, sects, faith groups uh, in, in America, and that we live together with such tolerance and equality of citizen rights, no matter what religious beliefs someone holds or what religious identity they have, is a fascinating model for the other countries. Um, I think the fact that I'm a rabbi and, and Jewish, also for many people who know world history, gives a kind of, of intellectual authority and experiential authority as a people that's been victimized um, uh, by religious persecution for so many centuries. And finally, the fact that I'm not of the religion that often I am speaking up for. Um, uh, for oppressed Buddhists or oppressed Christians or oppressed Muslims um, across the globe, wherever they may be. Uh, I, people know I'm not speaking out of self-interest. When you hear a guy like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi standing up in front of a crowd a couple years ago announcing this launching of this caliphate and then going out and doing essentially what he's done, how does, he, how does that make you as a religious man and a rabbi and, 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 and a representative of this government or democracy and all of the other things that make you who you are, how does that make you feel? Having known vividly from the history of my own people um, and watching on the world scene what happens when good people remain silent in the face of those who would use their religious beliefs or their ideal political ideological beliefs uh, to believe that they can destroy freedom and they can destroy other people who differ with them. Uh, this is a quintessential uh, example of that challenge to the world and the fact that the president stood up so strongly um, uh, when the Yazidis were threatened with genocide that the secretary declared this formally what's going on to be genocide and has worked to mobilize the international community is really a, a, a source of pride. And the best way, the best way we can most vividly and dramatically um, uh, defeat uh, what ISIL has tried to create is by creating those, not only destroying the group, but creating those conditions where the very people he was subjecting to genocide and ethnic cleansing are able to return to their homes with hope for a better future. By all accounts, the global efforts, including what the State Department is doing to help ethnic minorities and religious minorities, is going in the right direction. But with ISIL still active, more people being killed, more terror attacks being plotted, the entire effort 
has a long way to go. And coming up in our next episode, a warning. Anyone from Daesh who's listening, we will continue to fight Daesh until they are completely defeated. An emotional interview with Bayan Thami Abdul Rahman, the representative of the Kurdistan Regional Government in Washington, angry about what happened to her beloved Sinjar. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.